You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Karasimovich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lolana, literature enthusiast and a guy working in media. This right here is the podcast for people who are trying to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to know to understand these works. If you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. All right, Matt, what I'd say are we getting into this week, but really, what are we finishing up this week? We are finally, after inching along towards it for weeks, <laughs> we're, we're finishing up uh, Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita. Uh, as I said to Cameron before, before the episode, uh, after witnessing a number of uh, Reddit threads complaining about the uh, Russian names in, in lots of <laughs> Russian books, you know, right? How dare they? Uh, I, d- I decided we could we could call him Mikey Bulgogi this week, and that that would be sufficient. Yeah, yeah, old Mikey Bulgogi. Oh, Mikey Bulgogi. He he notoriously <laughs> hated when people called him that. But, well. <laughs> yes, recovering. Uh, it was a twenty-six through the epilogue of Miguel. Miguel Bogogi's uh, masterpiece, Master and Margarita. I'm trying to think of a more American way. that we will desecrate <laughs> shortly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, we've, been here, we've been here for a little while. We've been with one of the greats of uh, Soviet, Soviet literature for, for over a month now. Uh, is there anything, before we talk about the wrapping up the story, finally getting to Master and Margarita, the, the Master and Margarita having their, their day in the sun, anything you want to address before we get into it? So... I do actually, because I always before I do these episodes, a lot of times I'll go online and I will see, especially for the more popular ones, what people are struggling with, and I'll try to pick out what are some of the questions that I see across a lot of a lot of different, you know, threads or forums or wherever I can find what minuscule discussion exists online for Russian literature. Right. And for this one, I there's just like a lot of threads of people being like, I don't get it. And I actually think that that is a fair response to this book. Yeah. I don't think any of us really get it. And if you've gotten to the end and you're just waiting for us to unlock this and, uh, and unveil uh, Mikey Bulgogi's kingdom to you and, and show you, you know, this one master key that's going to uh, allow you to understand it, it's, it's, that's not going to be it, I don't think. And I feel like all of the articles that I have have read have just so desperately wanted to do that and i really haven't seen any that are that convincing yeah i think almost you should think about this in the same way that if you happen to listen to our our episode on solaris uh you should approach it much in the same way that if you walk away confused uh but with a lot of thoughts that's a good place to be but if you walk away feeling like i think i got that you should perhaps reconsider the position that you've come out on and and maybe take a moment to re-examine that and what led you there yeah, uh, but okay. <laughs> opposite from Solaris, I think it should be it should it should still be um, funny, right? Probably, uh, but in like a real way, not in like an I I know a lot about Tarkovsky, and so I think this is funny, funny kind of way. <laughs> right. Also, I have a really uh, sick and twisted sense of humor, so I, I think making my friends watch this is funny, kind of way. <laughs> that's different. That's completely different, and that that to me is just the main takeaway. That's it. It's genuinely funny. Have a good time. Uh, it, I mean, I think in a lot of ways there's a okay. So there is. This I don't know if you've ever listened to the Mountain Goats, but one of the most popular albums of the Mountain Goats is All Hail West Texas, and the, I think it's the opening song is the best ever meth, death metal band from Denton, and it, the song ends on after this whole song, uh, um, the lead singer yelling "Hail Satan" for like a 
good minute, which is an odd move for a Catholic, you might think. Uh, but as he described it in a podcast, it kind of that moment came to him as sort of a moment of uh, just a, a method of transgression, right? And a method of all the stress in the song, all of all the storytelling here is released in this moment of transgression. And there's this moment of just like you step over the line and suddenly you feel like, ah, oh, you know, I'm here, I've done it. And you do it again and again. I kind of feel like that's what, at least when I'm reading this, that's what I read in a lot of this is that there's the the beauty and the glory and the that stress relief of transgression in Master and Marguerite in all parts, especially towards the ending here. I'm not even really going to step into the level of mountain goats knowledge that you have right now. I'm going to let that stand. <laughs> sure, sure. Not going to step into my, uh, my uh, uh, what was it, the four or five months my girlfriend and I spent just like listening to every album and listening to the, all the podcasts he went on to study for our show. That's not a <laughs> not an inviting conversation. It's fortunate for me that this podcast is about the one thing, the one small thing that I know a lot about. But there, it, it just appears there are so many things that you know so much about. <laughs> um, it's just that the podcast isn't about that. But it is amazing every time uh, <laughs> when you know these things to me. Uh, yeah, well, one day, I think when we transition to our secondary podcast, which is just going to be the various yes. rabbit holes that we could yes, go yes, down, yes. well, we'll get more into those. But... Speaking of people who are going down rabbit holes, that's a perfectly fine segue into the end of this book. I think so. I think so. I think that's a great way to start. So we left off last time with the uh, the master finally being returned to Margarita, the liberation of the master, and we let's come back to the procurator in, in chapter twenty six uh, with the how the procurator tried to save Judas of Carioth. As you may recall, the procurator, uh, this is shortly after uh, uh, Yeshua on uh, Nosri's execution, and Pilate uh, brings his the head of his secret police in and says, hey, I have some information that Judas of Carioth, the man who turned in that information that uh, led to Yeshua's death, uh, that he's going to be killed tonight. And the head of the secret police, Afranius, is like, I, I haven't heard anything about that. And Pilate's like, you should look into it. He says, okay, sure. And what ends up happening is uh, that night, uh, as Judas is walking the streets, a woman kind of approaches him and says, "Hey, meet me out in this, you know, near in these gardens and these. I believe there it's an olive vineyard near Gethsemane. Gethsemane is not far from where, of course, uh, Yeshua is was crucified. And he goes there, uh, you know, entranced by this woman, uh, someone he seems to know fairly well. And uh, while he's there, he is stabbed to death. And uh, as as it turns out, is the the murderer is none other but our very own." procurator Pontius Pilate. The The next day, Pilate uh, gives a light rebuking to Afranius for not uh, preventing Judas's death. But of course, as you can tell by the conversation, through their conversation about how are we going to investigate this murder, it's really setting up the story of how are we going to, what's our, our story for why this murder wasn't solved. Um, and uh, Afranius tells him more about how the burial of these three criminals, Yeshua al-Nosri and the two others went and notes that uh, he found the body of Yeshua in the possession of Levi Matvey and the uh, procurator says, now, of course, I should have guessed. And uh, Matvey kind of uh, is actually Afranius has brought Matvey to this this palace and they have a conversation which basically leads into uh, Judas, excuse me, uh, Pilate saying, hey, come work for me and revealing that he killed Judas, which is what leads Levi Matvey, who had up to that point been intending himself to kill Judas to sort of his service. Um, and that is where we leave off at the procurator for now. Uh, from there, we jump back into Margarita's perspective, and we, at this point, we kind of 
have this sort of cavalcade of comedy as the investigators are trying to figure out what has happened the other night. Why are all these people under this, what they believe is mass hypnosis? Why are all these people disappearing? And we have this sort of um, comedy of errors as they, um, uh, as in the you know ensuing days, things return to normal. And But suddenly the investigators trying to tie up loose ends, find Volan's retinue from time to time, and it always leads to chaos. Uh, including one point when uh, they get into a shootout with Behemoth, uh, <laughs> which leads to no one at all being hurt. That is a hands down the best scene of the entire book. Yeah. <laughs> I think the playing straight of them being in a shootout before they all realize that no one's hurting anyone. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> that, was, that is so funny to me. Uh, yeah, so as Behemoth's making escape, he also sets the apartment on fire, and from there, Behemoth and Koroviev are kind of tranced around the city, making one last pass at causing chaos, setting fires, setting on fire a hard currency store, eventually setting Grubiedovs on fire before returning to the devil, and the devil being like, oh, interesting, I guess they're going to have to rebuild them, going through the usual antics before, as they are waiting for, uh, he listened to the story, Levi Matvey shows up and says, look, I've got message from the big man upstairs uh not the big man from you know our friend uh, yeshua nosri whatever name yeshua is going by now and uh, he says that you should take the master and margarita into into peace and the devil's kind of like well haven't they earned your your place and why don't they go with you and matve says look they've earned peace not light so they go with you from there uh the azazello goes and fetches Master and Margarita, they're uh, off in their own little apartment now, which was formerly uh, Alois, uh, you know, another someone who is then vacated by the devil, but formerly the masters, as they're having this quiet moment as Zello appears and gives them a bottle of wine to celebrate, which ends up poisoning both of them before he sort of unpoisons both of them. They get up from this sort of death and they go with him back to the devil, goes to Sparrow's Hill. Uh, Sparrow Hills, which is, uh, if you're not familiar with uh, Sparrow Hill, it's sort of this, um, I is, I don't know if it's the main building of Moscow State University or if it's the whole campus of Moscow State University is up there, but it's like a, a hill that overlooks Moscow. So you can see most of the city from up there. And they go take one last look at the city before they fly off into their eternal refuge. Uh, and as they fly into the night away uh, into uh, away from Moscow, which I, as a small note, the Moscow kind of fades into the distance um, in a similar, very similar terms to how we're introduced to um, to Jerusalem the first time. And uh, the f- the true versions, the true uh, aspects of Volan's retinue are finally um, revealed as they fly away and as they stare mournfully up into the moon uh, before the Master and Margarita are sent to their eternal peaceful home in some kind of unknown plane. Um, also, we, we, we delve briefly into uh, Ivan uh, Bezdomny, who just goes by Ivanushka. They say goodbye. They also stop in to say goodbye to him. Uh, he is now completely calm. All this sort of earlier mania of these, these, uh, the initial uh, arrival of the devil has left him, and he now is uh, called, the master refers to him as his disciple, which is going to be, at least I think, important later. And uh, they go to their, so Master Margarita go to their eternal home, and in the epilogue, the investigators determine that all these weird occurrences actually have a completely rational explanation and everyone goes back to their normal life, more or less. Some with the psychological scars, leave behind their jobs, go to new jobs, retire early, whatever, with the exception of Yvonne, who uh, every year, once a year, around the same time that uh, the Devil's Ball had happened, uh, goes to Patriarch's Ponds to stare at the moon and he feels drawn in some way to it. Um, and, and, and although he knows rationally that he was subject to 
uh, a sense of uh, to mass hypnosis as everyone else was, he feels in some way that that is not true. And that is where we leave Master and Margarita. He also turns into a werewolf on the full moon. <laughs> right. And it's a really weird sort of... That's actually the sequel. Yeah. Well, yeah, much in the same way that the Master beseeches Yvonne to write the sequel to Pilot's story, uh, Yvonne also takes control of this narrative and writes his own story in which he becomes a, a werewolf haunting not only Moscow, but also London and, and all these other... It's, it's It becomes a whole franchise. And then he's in the Thriller music video, yeah. and it is just... It goes really off the rails from there. Yeah, he sort of sells out at a certain point. I mean, his, his artistic project really... He really goes corporate. That's what I can't forgive with him. Yeah, that's the problem. I mean... That's the problem. I mean, I get it. After the Soviet Union falls, it's a difficult time for everyone. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a line between survival and really just, I mean... I mean, shouldn't an artist have a limit? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that... Well, I think that's what really we're recovering in this episode. Just where is the... (laughs) (laughs) Where is the line as an artist? (laughs) Yeah. uh, I wouldn't know. I don't produce anything useful. I make a podcast, so... (laughs) So you're going to have to tell us if any of you happen to be artists. Uh, we do have some, some quite artistic listeners out there. Anyway, so where do you want to start with this ending? Is there anything you want to address first? First, I actually wouldn't mind taking a, a quick break and being back in just just a second. Sure, absolutely. A quick second, though. Just, a, just an incredibly brief second. And if you're listening on like Spotify, don't hit that 30-second fast-forward button. I'm going to make this purposely an odd increment so that you'll miss whatever I'm talking about next. <laughs> Yeah, and if you skip it, then you won't know who this episode is brought to you by, and it's brought to you by you, my listeners. Whoa! I know, wild. Oh. Uh, you didn't expect that one. Uh, you can support independent podcasting by heading to our website, slaviclitpod.com. You'll get access to the notes we use to make this episode, including links to all of our secondary sources mentioned. Oh, we got some good ones this episode. We do. We have good ones every episode, but, uh, yeah, this one, too. <laughs> if you want to support the show but you don't want to spend any oh man i didn't think of my ad lib for this part if you want to support the show but you don't want to spend any of your hard-earned um i don't know artistic labor vouchers sure yeah you can join our email list for free at slaviclipod.com or you can leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcast those are my favorite above everything else to see i do i do i do like labor vouchers but um yeah you know reviews are nice too Either or, you know, if you want to give us both, that's great. Questions, comments, or maybe you want to appear on our Office Hours podcasts, drop us a line. You can reach our voicemail at 209-800-3944, or you can also email us a voice recording or text question at slaviclippod at gmail.com. We'll bring your question onto the podcast and do our best to address it. All right, back to the hill overlooking Moscow. Right, back to Sparrow Hills. Is it Sparrow's Hill or Sparrow... Hills, Hills or... Okay, sorry, it's Sparrow Hills, plural. Beautiful place, uh... Also, I as a side point. What do you mean, there, beautiful place? What have you been looking there? What we've been there. <laughs> have we? Yeah. Oh. Okay. <laughs> well. We took we took an incredibly dangerous picture where at the, there's a, a top at the top of the hill. There's like a big, I think marble or granite railing, and uh, if you look over the railing, there's a steep drop onto like a hundred oh, foot yeah, drop behind no, it. I do remember. Yeah. <laughs> and then okay. I didn't know that, so I laid on like I literally I got on top of the railing, laid on it, and took like a oh, pay me like one of your French girls kind of photo. And then I looked back mm-hmm. and was like, oh, I, if I fell, I think I'd actually die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 you would have. <laughs> and, and and there would have not been much for you after that, considering of well, you know, you've heard the story probably of camera desecrating the holy spring <laughs> yeah it would have, well i as as my homestead mother pine desecrating the holy spring might have actually saved me it might have been a sort of impromptu baptism i was already baptized as a child i don't think you can do it a second time but i guess that depends on your 
congregation. I don't know, whatever form of Christianity your baptism is coming from. Tends to, tends to depend on whether it was Trinitarian or not, but uh, right. I digress. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back. We'll come back to the Trinitarian doctrines later on. Yeah. Um, usually, baptism is not done by sticking one foot in a holy spring, but hey, hey, you could be. Baptism at the Protestant church I grew up in was done in a hot tub on stage. So I think. <laughs> All right. No doubt. <laughs> Cameron, Cameron was in the righteous gemstones before it was cool. <laughs> Anyhow, okay. Let's talk about. Master and Margarita. So this, like every other part, is a pretty packed part. I mean, that was a very... When when I'm skipping over, like, the Mos- like, chaos still being caused in Moscow, there's still a lot of chaos being caused in Moscow, especially with uh, Karoviev and Behemoth's final uh, final send-off. Also, I, as to point Matt's point earlier, this is still... This remains an incredibly funny part. And if you are going through this book, you know, if you're ever wondering, are you in the right translation or not, it's for you that Matt... What, the most important thing, I think, is whether or not you're having a good time reading this. It should be very funny because it is very funny. I can I can weigh in a little, too, because uh, the first time I read this book, I really liked it a lot. Mm. And I don't remember what translation I was using. I was reading it for class, and I had a, one that I thought was funny. I, I, I'm reading... Let me double check to make sure that is what I'm actually reading this time. Yeah, I am reading the Pevier and Valachonsky one, which is by far the prettiest looking cover of them all. I This is... Out of all the books that I own. This is one that I consistently get compliments on, on the cover. Right. The text sucks. It is not funny <laughs> at all. It is like, uh, it is like abhorrent what they've done with some of the passages. Um, I don't even need to look at the original to know that it is butchered because of the fact that it is just not funny. Right. It, like at all. <laughs> so on this read through, it hasn't been as enjoyable for me. I mean, I know it's, I, I know my experience the first time was much better than, than this time. Just, purely based on the translation and, and that's someone who reads a lot of russian slavic literature you know understands where the humor should be coming through and it totally didn't so if it, you know like cameron said if you're thinking maybe hmm doesn't seem that funny to me well maybe, maybe double check a different translation it might make it a little bit better <laughs> i remember at one point i was trying to grab a quote from master margarita put on put somewhere and i was i, I think i had to pay Varen Valhansky copy and i i went to go grab the part where the cat's like oh no this isn't vodka it's pure alcohol and i read that and i was like i remember this being funnier so i had to go back to the russian like translate it myself just to be like i feel like because i in other translations this is a very funny moment i i I don't think it was conveyed well in that one i i was reading the the edition translated by uh, diana bergen and Catherine tiernan and that for my for my money i think that that one came through very well for me it was very funny it captured the spirit of what i think the novel should be yeah i i don't know that you're gonna get like you know everything from the original but you can get the definitely the gist and this one to me didn't quite get the gist yeah 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 that's fair speaking of getting the gist uh, let's talk when if we start start with uh, the procurator and uh, our, our good friend Pontius Pilate sure our, our erstwhile hero of a sort I don't want to like overstate my case here because I, I I hesitate in much in the same way that at the start of this episode Matt pointed out rightfully so that if you walk away from this being like i think i got it this i this is my understanding and this is this is what the book is about you're you're probably missing some things um i don't want to overstate the case here uh, especially in in terms of reading this as a piece of dissident literature right reading this specifically as like a oh the soviet state wouldn't let him write this or wrote this secretly for the drawer which is of course true uh, uh, but i think that we shouldn't reduce it only to as this is one big metaphor for um you know 
the sort of uh, writing about the Soviet state. I think it's, I, I think it's, it's definitely not. I think actually most of, if you see anything today for the most part that has continued to live on as something that people recommend reading, it is because it exceeds a simple satire of the Soviet Union or a criticism of the Soviet Union, for instance, right? Yeah. It, there's something else there that's worthwhile to kind of dig out and kind of wrestle with. And this for sure is, is a great example of that. There's 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 more. There's layers. Like, it's been picked up by people in so many disciplines. Everybody who doesn't study Russian literature, like, has has had some input or take on this book. It's extremely, extremely popular for that reason that there's just a lot there. Yes, exactly. And so, uh, in so I'm with that caveat in mind. I think one thing I want to focus on is after uh, Pilot has or not has Judas after he does kill Judas at night after he does make sure Yeshua Al Nosri uh, Hanosri is um, is buried. He at one point I think I, I can't remember. I want to say this is the narrator almost in conversation with Pilot where he's regretting having you know Hanosri's death uh, and. He in the narrator says, "Excuse me, philosopher." As as Pilate's thinking of how he wishes uh, Hanosri was still alive, could you, with your intelligence, really imagine that the procurator of Judea would ruin his career over a man who had committed a crime against Caesar? Of course he would. He would not have done it in the morning, but now at night, having weighed everything, he would be glad to do it. He would do anything to save the totally innocent mad dreamer and physician from death. And so there's a couple layers there. One, you know, earlier on, if you wanted to read. Uh, um, Hanosri's death in this case as sort of a implicit criticism of the ways that you know uh, the small crimes of the society that you might uh, suffer for in, in Hanosri's case a mere criticism of Kaiser. Uh, now at this point uh, Pilate no longer believes simply speaking out as a crime at all. On one level you could read it that way but also on another level I'm really interested in the place that night operates under and not only night but the features of night night the moon so many of our characters uh literally become transformed and at night in this case pilot obviously goes from uh thinking no i must carry out my duty i must uh have hanosri killed uh for this crime against kaiser but also in a, in a more literal sense right we've got um margarita and natasha of course are transformed into witches at night under this full moon and for pilot uh we are talking about the full moon here but uh, as pilot's story continues he will become enraptured by the moon in fact in a way um i, I don't i think i might have mentioned i might not have mentioned this in my Did summary you read that article on the moon <laughs> no is that what you draw this from uh no i actually i did i was trying to find an article on the moon i did not read i i had one about oh okay i had i found an article about the moon but it was more so about the dates and the unless the so about the moon itself if you actually had one on the moon okay, I, I would I, actually I, like to interrogate that because the moon was something i that, didn't read it okay. i just saw one about the moon and the lunar cycles and i thought huh i wonder if you can't read that one it's funny because i'll see what you read based on the things that i was like yeah i don't know if i'll get to that <laughs> and then, then you'll talk about it and i'll be like oh man i should have read that one <laughs> man, i feel in this case we'll have to both have to go back and look at that one um, probably yeah i don't know if i have like a solid like what this is what night is but right i mean in the daytime everything is normal but at nighttime that is when this sort of uh this the world of I don't know, normalcy goes away, right? I mean, we literally, in a sense, that uh, we go from the normal world of Moscow to Volin telling the story. And I think it begins in, in Jerusalem, if not at night, at, like at least in a darkening sky under the storm. Um, and you have these characters who, 
I don't know. It's under some sort of cloak, right? You've got these people who are all stuck in feeling they have to live a certain way, and then they're given some sort of uh, reason or some sort of uh, excuse to break out of that. And broadly speaking, it's nighttime, but I, I think you could tie it to a lot more than that, right? I mean, for Margarita, obviously, we've talked about sort of the place that witchiness played, becoming a witch, uh, all these other these features, these characteristics that this might imply for this, this um, uh, transformation in terms of... Um, pilots that's obviously the purest where it's just simply the fall of night no longer being under i don't know the watchful gaze of the state of uh, kaiser of his own secret police of himself uh, now is able to engage with himself in an honest way and i think that's a a lot of characters in this book are not able to engage with them honestly engage with themselves honestly i would say that's what leads to berlioz's death in a way <laughs> volan kills him because he's he's uh you know he's peddling this dishonesty that Volan kind of accuses him of knowing that it is. So I don't know if I have like a, a solid outcome here. I don't know. I blame the small girl who spills the sunflower oil. Yeah, well, I guess, yeah, in a literal sense. <laughs> what was she doing there with all that sunflower oil? I, that's just too much sunflower oil to have outside. That's too dangerous. You should have known. Mm-hmm. This should be against, you know, this should be against the, the rules and regulations of the Comsmall. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I have like a, a solid, what does this mean? But it's it's interesting that this this place that the night plays, and especially the moon, because Pilot, as as we'll find later on when the Margarita and Margarita and the Master are flying away, they find Pilot uh, still in Judea for who's been sitting there for two thousand years, staring at the moon, and you know Volan tells them, right? I mean, like you never finished the story, so he's stuck here, and all he done in for thousands of years, all he's done is comment that the moon is bad tonight. The the very lines that he's introduced to us by and. After so much time, the master the master finally finishes his story and beseeches him to that he's free. He can finally go, and uh, the city falls apart, and this night falls away. And Pilate finally follows the path up to this this physician that he's been you know seeking after for two thousand years, um, and uh, goes up to to finally go to Yeshua Al Nosri uh, And I think that's interesting that much in the same way that Margarita can forgive, she forgives Frida. The master can forgive uh, Pilate. And so this this very central tenet of Christianity, the idea that, uh, you know, the Christ head, Christ figure, is the one by this crucifixion forgives all of mankind, uh, is not true here. In, in fact, there are certain people, in this case, Master Margarita, who can forgive people that no one else can forgive, or simply it's not their department to forgive. And I think that's a very interesting thing. That's true. That's very interesting. I didn't think about night that much, but it is interesting. Yeah. I, it's just so much of this story happens, I mean... I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking night in terms of the story, but it just feels like so. I don't think so. I mean, I think that that's kind of the trick of the story. Um, there was one article that I I skimmed uh, on why critics can can't agree on what the story means, and I think that you bring up a good point, which is that there are certain central points of the story where they seem to connect all these different plot lines, and so. Critics will try to map on certain characters, certain themes, certain just things that seem to be recurrent across all of these different plot lines and say, okay, well, this happens in in this spot in in these plot lines, and so we can connect them based on this. Um, But it doesn't usually or always quite hold. you You know, they don't quite all overlap onto each other. Uh, and for this reason, there's always these sort of discrepancies that don't quite line up um, in sort of the va- in sort of the vaguest of of ways. Um, 
And so I think that that's what kind of a lot of interpretation does in the book, which is that it brings it to a certain point, but it doesn't quite reveal what it is and what it's doing. And that's what I think remains so fascinating about it. Um, and so what I would say uh, for this book specifically is that that's kind of why I've come to the conclusion of just enjoy the book. There are some cases where scholarship and criticism can really improve your reading experience. I'm going to be honest, I really don't know if this is one of them. Um, I don't know if there's, you know, anyone listening who's had something just so insightful and brilliant that they feel like should be shared. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like this one, for this reason, that I'm not sure there's just, uh, you know, a handful of, of dominant theories that can really, y- you know, be excessively applied you know what i mean a lot of what i'm reading is just super super ingrained in uh, not just russian but other world literatures and comparison and just it it just strikes me as a little too much is all not to be an anti-academic here but uh no i get it i think i think what are the like you say trying to create an overarching i guess moral world here is difficult right because you might be tempted and maybe you could do this successfully i'd have to see it where for example, in this conversation between the devil and Levi Matfei, where Matfei refers to him as, you know, evil, you know, he calls him spirit of evil. And so they're like, okay, they've got a traditional, we've got Matfei, the representative of Christ and the devil here. And the devil's like, well, you know, says if what would all your good do if evil didn't exist? And what would the earth look like if all the shadows disappeared? And, you know, Matfei calls him a sophist. And we're like, okay, so this is more of a traditional, maybe good and evil idea. But then Matfei tells the devil to take the master Margarita and give him peace, which is apparently, you know, which is something that the, the devil here is able to do. Light is different from peace, but, you know, peace is still a good thing, which the devil has the ability to grant. That introduces an interesting, uh, like, complication of this, this moral system of, of religion, or I guess, I don't know if it's religion per se, but, like, this is, there's so many spanners are thrown into, like, these consistent things that if you did the work, maybe you could create this consistent, like, here is the system, here is the world, here is the moral line. But I don't really know if it's, if it, it is there in any sense, right? I mean, at the end of the novel, Under the Moon, finally all the retinue of, of Voland are revealed in their true aspects. And maybe in another book, those true aspects would reveal some deeper truth about the book. But I don't know if they do here. They're interesting, right? Korovia being a sort of a knight who told a bad joke. Behemoth being a, 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 the greatest gesture of his age. Um, Azazello being just a demon killer. I, I mean, all these things in there, maybe in another book, would have a significance. And I think they do have significance here. But I don't think that's one that like ties up anything, ties up anything super meaningful. It, it is more than it is consistent, I guess. It is, it is really really hard i think this is in in one way why some people have called it a post-symbolist work um but just because none of the characters none of the anything of the book i don't think can really be nailed down as fixed so you might have something that works really well for a handful of instances but someone else can read through and then or you could read through and find right well it doesn't doesn't quite line up in this case because this character is you know they're they're different here um, a lot of the characters' essences, if you will, aren't completely fixed, especially when we're talking about this, these <laughs> otherworldly presences. And it is a challenge, like Margarita says. It's not every day that you meet these unclean spirits. <laughs> right. um, just some of those lines are so good. Um, but yeah, no, that is definitely a challenge because the book brings you to the precipice of of seemingly understanding perfectly what is going on. Yes, it's good and evil. Yes, it's this or that. But it doesn't quite conclude completely. 
on that. And we'd love it to, but it probably wouldn't be the book that it is if it did. No, I think the fact that it leaves these things, like up to the point of how much of this happened, right? I mean, there's a certain point in the book which basically implies that the physical bodies or some material representation of both Master and Margarita stayed in their place the whole time. That there is at the, when Master and Margarita die, so to speak, in their uh, in their apartment, which other people do interact with them, which with um, Yvonne is in his cell or in his, his room and a nurse after some cajoling tells him that the man in 118, which is of course the master who's apparently still there has died. And this happens after the master Margarita go visit him. And he says, he kind of declares, Oh, well I bet across the city that there's a woman who's died at almost the same moment. And uh, also there's an allusion to like a woman in Margarita's apartment calling out for Natasha. So you've got a possible physical representation of both these two people that who never left. Uh, and of course they're spiritual, physical, you know, what is it, you know, representation that are actually interacting with the devil that goes off. Who's to say, I don't know. It's, it, it it's just unresolved. And I think it doesn't matter if you resolve it or not. I don't think that it would add into the story if you did nail that down. It simply is. Yeah, and so that to me is kind of, that that to me is sort of in, in some ways. Now, I, I keep in mind I, I'm not an expert at all in anything I'm about to say. But <laughs> to me, that is sort of the almost like theological, if you will, significance of of the novel is that the, these people, these characters, you can continue to go further and further into your sort of understanding of them they're sort of infinite in that way and like the novel as as they combine are sort of uh, infinite we can never completely grasp what it means to know these characters which is really really frustrating as a reader and as someone who's trying to almost systematically understand them right Mm -hmm. and so that is what remains frustrating to me as someone who has to come on and, and feel like they have to give somebody an answer about what this book is about, like, I don't really know. Um, you know, I certainly have some thoughts on it, but uh, on one level, it is about what is sort of fundamentally unknowable to us. And, and the only character that seems to be all-knowing is this devil figure that we have. But even with him, he doesn't give us everything that we want to know, and that's what's, you know, frustrating. Even with the devil in the end, when finally the their aspects of all the retinue are revealed, Margarita looks over at the devil and says, uh, finally, his true aspect is, is apparent now, too. And then she describes his horse. We still don't know the devil. He's the most unknowable, yeah. the only character who knows it all. I mean, maybe the only two who know it all are Yeshua, Hanosri, uh, and the devil, and neither of them truly appear in the novel, in a sense. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that like gets me thinking on on this book, especially after I've had a beer, and I'm like, oh, that is, <laughs> right. that is quite quite interesting. I do think we've got these parallel stories, and uh, we've got. I think I think it's really interesting. I don't know what I, like so much of this is like. I think this is interesting. I want to call attention to it, but I don't have a solid answer here for what this is. Right when they're leaving, like I mentioned before, Moscow, they leave Moscow in the same way that we join Jerusalem, and with almost the same words, except the only difference being mm-hmm. the storm beginning. In that case, the storm begins, and that leads to us the rest of the story in Jerusalem. And here, the storm begins, and Voland disappears. Right, um, like these two ties between these two pla- two places, and looking at a lot of. Uh, analysis of this there's a lot of articles we both read and we don't bring on here because we it's it either doesn't fit with no amount of time well for whatever reason it is and so many of them do so much work to really make the parallels like all try to map out all these parallels and uh you know i don't know like there's one article that happens to be you know note on may day good friday and the full moon in bulgakos master margarita which is like five pages on 
does devil's ball happen on the happen on good friday <laughs> right like what in when what day does that correspond to in the jerusalem plot line that's like bulgakov's like you know like wired autocomplete interview <laughs> right. <laughs> right. um yeah there's so much so many people focusing on that and you know i think obviously you can't discount it because it's drawn that attention is drawn to it so often uh but also i wonder if that overtakes you know a lot of other meanings in a way that uh just like just trying to be like where where are the lines where is the where are the where are the direct comparisons here what do they mean might almost overshadow a lot of the other things being conveyed in the novel um and i I do want to jump from there into into talking about yvonne i don't know that's kind of like going to be its own tangent is there anything you or we're still here you want to address before i take us off in a different direction just on on the very briefly on on the inability to like completely pin down the the everything so I, I think that Bulgakov definitely is... Well, we know for a fact that this is a satire of the Soviet system. But I think that what what goes over people's heads when they read it now is how the, the Soviet system, the, a lot of the underlying bases of it, weren't necessarily like that far off from a lot of the underlying bases of how we also think. It, it wasn't that different, some of it. Um, this this over-reliance on a sort of materialist understanding of our own world. And I think what Bulgakov is is posing is, is, right, the idea that there is probably, there could be, it seems likely based on, you know, his book, right, that he thought that there was more to it. Uh, and so poking fun at people who have this sort of over-reliance on, especially looking at the epilogue, a materialist understanding, well, it was all mass psychosis or... Ah, psychology tells us uh, that it was this or that. Um, you know, our our kind of knee-jerk reaction to prescribe what it was, because the idea that something isn't completely fathomable to us is so uncomfortable to sit with. Um, and it's uncomfortable even thinking about it as, like, talking about it on the podcast, because I want to know what he was on about, right? But... Um, you know, this this goes to our own our own understanding of how we see the world today, right? Um, that that's why I think it, it continues to be more than just a simple satire because it does kind of you know it, it pokes fun at like a really dominant strand of thinking in the last lot of years, I would say, um, and I think that's why it remains like just. Of course, it's funny, but it also is like challenging for us to read now, you know, where we want to kind of break down and understand everything exactly as it is. Um, and Polkakov says, no, you don't get to do that. You do not get to do that. Um, and so that's what I think remains kind of interesting about it and challenging. And uh, maybe you don't agree with me. That's fine. You're 42 minutes into the episode. I've already won. <laughs> right. No, I think that's a good point because even this world of like what has happened is also it's even even the very basis of the story itself is continually subverted. Right. I mean, we've already mentioned, you know, the physical potentially forms of Master Margarita, but also at the very end and like the last two or three pages, uh, Ivan Bezdomny or just simply Ivan at this point, Professor Ivan, I forget his last name, uh, is like every year he has this dream we mentioned. And in this dream, he happens to see what is 
alluded to or in, insinuated by the text to be Yeshua Hanozri and Pontius Pilate walking forever every year with his dog. And, you know, in this, you know, the ending, you've got like, you know, Pilate saying, oh, what a vulgar execution that was. Tell me it didn't really happen. And, uh, you know, the Yeshua says, oh, of course it didn't. And Pilate says, you swear to that? And Yeshua says, yeah, of course. Uh, and, you know, if, could you could read that as simply a, sort of a conversation between companions, friends, what have you. But also in you know <laughs> literal sense, this 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 story is also telling you this very basic part of this own novel. I don't think it's actually telling you this didn't happen, but like calling doubt to it, I think is the bigger point, right? Um, even if the doubt is not for you, the reader, even if the doubt is for the characters themselves, um, you know the basic plot points are doubted by one or another, or at least uh, at least denied, right? The very basis of this world is not, even if it is only in the minds of those who live it, is not is not um, standard. It's not consistent. Yeah, this is an interesting point. But speaking of that, do you mind if we talk about Ivan, our friend Ivanushka? I I know you want to go to Ivan, and I'm curious to hear what uh, what you have on Ivan here. What's your dirt on Ivan? <laughs> when I'm gonna open up the file we have on uh, Mr. What did you dig up from his uh, MySpace profile <laughs> that was so embarrassing on Ivan? <laughs> uh, we talked about Ivan briefly. I want to say it was episode one on sort of like the uh, this diagnosis of schizophrenia he gets and uh, saying that perhaps this schizophrenia diagnosis reflects that he is able to see he's not able to see between what they see as reality and fiction but in fact he is you know one of the two people who can see that reality coincides with a, a you know hyper reality in this novel novel this article i read the master margarita's P- creative process by pierre hart is really interesting because it uh, it has i don't know if i fully under like buy the idea of ivan as like a metaphor for creative process i think this gets the same idea of what matt was talking about earlier with there's a tendency to take one element and say this through line tells you what the novel is all about or at least really what we're supposed to take away the one of the big ones um and so i'm not going to oversell this point um but i do think the analysis of ivan's uh, evolution through the novel is super interesting because we begin the novel on Yvonne and we end the novel on Yvonne. And I would submit to you that there, I think there's like three main plot lines, of course, through Master Margarita, three stories of relationships. There's the story of the relationship, obviously, between the devil and Margarita uh, as the devil coming to Moscow and causing chaos. There's the story of the relationship between, tw- between Pilate and Yeshua Hanozri. And finally, there's the relationship between the master and, the Margar- and, and Margarita. Uh, however, I think there's also a fourth one, which is the relationship between Master and Yvonne. Uh, as the Master's relation, as, as Yvonne experiences the devil, and then in, in re- reaction to the, the Master's kind of pushing and prodding in those, those situations, he grows to be someone entirely different and someone that is in, in his own way tied into the narrative in a way that char- other characters aren't, right? Um, we begin on Ivan Bezdomny, sort of this Ivan the poet, uh, who has submitted a piece about Jesus Christ, but in this version, Jesus Christ is real, but he's saying, look, Jesus Christ was a flawed human like everyone else. And, you know, of course, Berlioz says, no, that we need you to say that Jesus doesn't exist. That's what we're here for, right? Um, he is, you know, Bezdomny is writing uh, officially sanctioned art. 
And uh, then, of course, we the Volan comes and all the rest happens. And Bezdomni is a little bit more receptive, right, to like what's going on there. And he's a little bit more willing to believe these fantastical elements, which does lead him to being institutionalized. Uh, I think an interesting point that Hart points out is that kind of very early on after uh, when uh, Bezdomni is trying to like track down Voland in the immediate aftermath of the murder, he shows up at Gurubiedov's that night wearing a white robe with a, uh, you know, uh, with an icon, icon pinned to his, his breast. It's uh, in his, it was it, uh, da, da, da. Uh, he was barefoot and wearing a whitish belted blouse on his chest, a paper icon, the picture of an unknown saint fastened with the safety pin in his hand. Ivan Nikolaevich carried a lighted candle. Um, you know, he, he's like, he, he, of course, everyone there thinks he's gone mad, but he almost takes on this idea of like this kind of holy fool, which you might be familiar, it's trope you might be familiar with of this person who by lacking rationality is in fact closer to God. Um, and as, as he is institutionalized, he of course is interacting with the master and, and, you know, the master tells him, you don't have very good poetry. And Yvonne says, yeah, I know I've planning to stop writing it and in interestingly he stops being called ivan bezdomny relatively early on and he becomes ivan you know ivanushka and finally the novel he's you know professor uh professor ivan nikolaevich and uh so he's like growing and i think the really the key point here is at the very end of the novel when uh finally the master makes his last visit to ivan uh the master refers to ivan as his disciple and basically tells him look uh i understand that you've wanted to stop writing and you have a greater project in mind so it's up to you to write um the epilogue to write the the sequel to what i have written to my piece right what comes next after that um and Ivan kind of says, okay, sure. And so it, what we begin on is Ivan Bezdomny, the party hack, writing like Jesus was a human person and is subject to, to like uh, human flaws, ends up being kind of the main point of the novel, which is Yeshua Hanozri, whatever the, you know, uh, apparently has some sense of divinity here, but also this Yeshua Hanozri is, claims humanity much more fully than I think you could say the Christ of the Bible does. And Ivan ends up being right, and he ends up being the disciple of the master to carry on that work. And of course, he doesn't actually do that. But every year, once a year, he's still that connection still carries on. And that, that connection to this story is deep, right? Because uh, uh, I think I want to say there are only three or four characters who, from whose perspective we jump from Moscow to 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 uh, Jerusalem. First, obviously, the devil who starts telling the story of Jerusalem. Then there's Margarita who begins reading, and that jumps into Jerusalem. And I want to say there's one other one. I forget one. I think it's Master. It, it is either the Master or Margarita, or perhaps from a scene where they're all there. But Ivan Desdomni, or you know Ivan, who is at this point been institutionalized, is the only other character who has that reaction. And instead of either being there and telling the story or reading about the story, he has it naturally. He is simply sitting in uh, in the asylum. He has had, I think, a sedative, and he's staring at the window, and what he sees out there transitions into Jerusalem. He has a very natural relationship to this story. And from this, this is where, you know, of course, um, Hart begins arguing that this is sort of a, um, a metaphor of sorts, an extended metaphor for the creative process, right? Um, which I don't know uh, if I fully, you know, I don't know if I fully buy that in particular, but I think it is an interesting 
point to make. And it's something that I'm like really following as I go along. I think uh, at one point, uh, it's, of course, the end, the master is not the end all be all of this creative process. It's not so much about the, the person as it is about the project itself. Um, and uh, Hart writes, elimination of the master from further artistic involvement leaves unanswered the question posed by Voland, who then will be writing? Whereas where the individual artist may concede defeat, the master margarita itself as a literary artifact attests to the ongoing nature of the artistic process. The master margarita itself, of course, not being its own first attempt or first pass at that. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's an interesting way of viewing it. Like I said, I don't know if I fully buy it, but Ivan, I think, is I think should be considered a fourth major plotline in the book in its own way. This relationship, this evolution of party hack to apparently respected professor uh, by this involvement in it and this very natural engagement with the themes that everyone else either lived through or has to read in a way. Yeah, that's interesting. I do think that the point on artistic creation is something that is, is pretty prevalent and, and important. Just the the actual, like, I, I just because of the, sh the way that the work is actually constructed, the amount of layers of who is actually telling what and what is actually happening, which is something that you can normally take for granted, I think, in a novel. Right. Um, is so just kind of morphed in this situation. And it's, it's so interesting just the way that y you're not sure what is, um, I don't know how to say, like, what is written, what is artificial construction and what is life right the border between these two is very blurred um and, and there is the more i read this the more i'm like okay every person is sort, of, is sort of its own level before it even reaches us as the reader and then as it's you know it continues to be filtered through us that relationship further uh deepens i guess and it becomes even more challenging and i think that that's again what makes it difficult to come to one definite conclusion and even just like some of the points that you mentioned like the way that people are called that they're named throughout the book changes so much and i've seen that point made in several different articles well okay they're called this here but they're called that over there and people will really read into this i think that what you were saying was totally um totally valid in that sense but i've i've seen some cases where i'm like okay maybe a little bit <laughs> right. much there i don't know um but again, it's just a testament to the construction of the novel and, you know, what it is overall that people can continue to just find more and more and more to to read into. But it, it does make me sometimes feel on, on this, like, you know, as we've been doing a lot of Nabokov this year, <laughs> like this sort of referential mania in some ways is what I feel like I'm doing. With yeah, this. I had that thought, that exact point of reference as you were going through that yeah <laughs> yeah it makes me kind of feel like you know have a laugh the cat the cat gets uh you know the cat's glocking people the cat's getting glocked no one's getting hurt everyone's having a, a pg fun uh, well uh, an american pg <laughs> fun time <laughs> uh a fun time um you know and there's a devil's ball, which may or may not be on Good Friday. So it makes me feel like, you know, it's funny. It's an enjoyable read. It's provocative in a lot of ways. And that it should be left at that and not necessarily just, you know, beat to death. I think, I th yeah, I think that's a good way of posing it. I think it's, we should perhaps take from the example of the Master and Margarita, who a master for years, or obsessing over this text, uh, turning himself into an asylum over it, finally lets go. And he actually, I maybe should have fun focused on this before, ends up burning 
uh, burning the manuscript along with everything else. He says, well, I don't need it. It's in my mind now. And with that sort of gentle relationship and finally finishing it and, and speaking the word into life, he and Margarita go to their simple eternal life of of uh, not happiness. I mean, not necessarily like light, not necessarily goodness, badness, but simply of peace, uh, letting it be as is. Maybe there's a lesson there. Maybe, or, or maybe not, and you can keep reading into it. I, yeah, it's fine. Or maybe way. you could just keep analyzing the symbolism all the way down to the end. You know what? As long as you're having fun, that's what's important to me. I think maybe that's really what this book is all about. Just have a good time. Mm-hmm. You know, just have a good time. Have a devil's ball. <laughs> Attend in, you know, whatever attire you will. Go swimming in the champagne. You know, just enjoy yourself. Just enjoy yourself. <laughs> Um, that's all I had to talk about. Is there anything you want to address while, while we're here before we close out? No, just thank you to everyone who read along with us. And I hope that this was fulfilling and interesting. Uh, and if you still have remaining questions to, you know, join our discord to talk about it with us, because I know as many of you who are listening as this comes out, uh, may have questions, but those of you who are listening years and years and years in the future, hopefully we'll still be here to, uh, you know, answer your questions before we, you know, likewise, I would assume get sent up with the master uh, and Margarita to our, our own piece, which is where all of podcasters will go just on a sort of a separate plane so that we stop, you know, our annoyance. Well, that's actually one of the contracts of becoming a podcaster is that you can neither go to heaven nor hell. You could sent somewhere else. It's a podcasting purgatory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, Oh, oh my God. I think this is, we didn't really mention this. I don't think we want to make a big deal out of it, but this I think is, if we've done our math right, our hundredth episode. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Released just before, uh, just a week before, I think, our three-year anniversary. So it's kind of our hundredth episode. If you don't count in some of the bonuses that we factored, that we did or did not factor, it's the hundredth one that we have uh, numbered in our Google Drive. Yes, according to our math, it is the hundredth episode. Um, we're gonna put a big, ex- or a, a big uh, asterisk there, and then just leave it like that. Yes. Happy birthday to Slavic Lit Pod. Just want to uh, point that out before we leave. Happy, you know, centennial episode. Yeah. Happy probable centennial. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of did it. <laughs> right. We probably did it a while back, but uh, that was was probably a much less momentous episode. So at least we we finished them. (laughs) Most likely. Right, right. Well, that's all I wanted to say on that. Didn't want to make too big of a deal of it, but hey, there it is. That's cool. Uh, But before we completely wrap up, Matt, I got to ask, well, I guess I can ask what we're tackling next week, but what what is coming up next for us? Oh, that is real sad. Yeah, (laughs) next week, uh, nothing's coming up. That is sad. Uh, Next month, nothing is also coming up for us. A big old fat nothing. Uh, we are on our December break next month, uh, but you will be hearing a little bit more from us. I will leave that in complete suspense uh, until you until you do do that hearing. But we will not be having any any numbered episodes. We have a couple of things that will be coming up, just kind of to keep your eyes and or ears peeled for. Uh, if you are not already aware, we're doing our chapter a day, Life and Fate read-along coming in 2024. We have so much work that has already gone and will be going into that. So if that's a book that you have ever wanted to read or sounds at all interesting to you, I really recommend that you hop on the chance to read it along with us this year because it might like it, it might not be a book that we do this for again. We have a lot of books that we're interested in exploring, so this might not happen again. So 
get on it. Well, you can. Um, other than that, I would say that, you know, we'll see you in uh, January of 2024. See you in the new year. I mean, I'll be clowning around on social media because that's what I do. But right. other than that, I'll see you in January. Yeah. Well, if you're on our Discord, you'll still see us, but uh, it's a little incentive for oh, you. Oh, I'm relentless there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Can't get away from me. Right. <laughs> Anyways, for all of you who are helping to keep our show independent, we so, so, so appreciate it. Uh, and if you are interested in helping support this podcast, which is such a labor of love, uh, go on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. You'll get notes, you'll get quotes, you'll get lots of stuff. We put a lot of work into designing our tiers. If you really don't care about the tiers, you're just happy that this show exists, you can also support us at slaviclitpod.com. And before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current supporters. Yes, and those are Mickey and or Mikey. Let me know what the pronunciation is. Uh, Eric, Peter, Eric again, this time with a K. Ben, Jeff, Mai, Daniel, Lou, Gary, Janice, Anne, Isaac, Emily, Caitlin, Yitza, Irini, and Pakrob. And the music used in this episode was Staraya Kino by Pedro Motka. You can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify. The links and spelling are in the show notes. You'll hear from us again in year four. Bye.